Happy Sunday for those of you who celebrated. Happy Easter and thank you for joining me today. We're going to have updated reporting on that devastating attack on the Capitol last Friday that left one Capitol police officer dead. But I want to begin tonight with a story. I promise it will all make sense at the end. All right. In 1157 BC, an Egyptian pharaoh named Ramesses V began seeing peculiar looking spots appear on his skin. He was pretty young at the time and he ultimately died. He was one of the first people to contract and lose their life to a highly contagious communicable, communicable disease uh, known as smallpox. Uh, this disease wreaked havoc in the early 1500s after being discovered through, through, through contact in Europe. It also reportedly altered the course of the Revolutionary War, causing outbreaking to, to occur in New England, which cost the Continental Army uh, the Battle of Quebec. Smallpox had a pernicious effect throughout history. However, in the 20th century, it is estimated to have killed approximately 300 to 500 million people. D.A. Henderson, uh, the former director of the disease surveillance, surveillance at the CDC, wrote in his 2009 book, uh, Smallpox, the Death of a Disease, quote, in the context of smallpox versus war, war lost, end quote. So in the battle against smallpox, we had lost. This disease was dominating the world. This was so detrimental that even after that, even the death toll from World War II and World War I was just a fraction compared to the fatalities of smallpox. As the years went by, it became pretty clear that this was going to be an annual thing. This is going to kill and to infect hundreds of thousands of people. And so in England in 1796, Dr. Edward Jenner created something that would become revolutionary in the fight against smallpox. His research and scientific efforts resulted in an earth-shaking discovery, which uh, helped essentially develop the smallpox vaccine. By 1807, uh, Bavaria declared smallpox vaccinations mandatory. In 1810, Denmark did the same thing. Cases began dropping drastically in Europe. Here in the United States, in 1813, Congress passed legislation to ensure the access of the smallpox vaccine. When the 20th century rolled around in 1900, uh, smallpox wasn't really a big problem anymore for the world. It wasn't really a big problem anymore for at least some parts of the world. In the 1800s, there was approximately 1 in 13 deaths from smallpox. By 1900, that number had dropped dramatically. It was essentially only 1% of deaths. In Northern Europe, many countries declared the disease eradicated. Uh, shortly after, the United States and Canada joined in making this relieving and exuberant statement. However, if other countries in the world had still had it uh, and were not necessarily immune from this disease, they could potentially defeat the rest of the world's immunity. And that's exactly what happened. 10 to 15, reportedly 10 to 15 million people contracted smallpox annually with 5 million people dying during the first half of the 20th century. For instance, one particular example in New York City on March 1st, 1940, 1947, a 47-year-old American businessman named uh, Eugene Labar arrived in New York after traveling by bus from Mexico City. Uh, New York was not his final destination, but he was actually on his way to Maine. But he began feeling sick, so he decided to halt further travel and checked in at a hotel with his wife. And after looking around the great enormous city of New York, Mr. Labar went straight to bed, 
He was exhausted and he had pain um, in the back of his neck as well as a headache. Uh, things from there did not go well for him. By March 5th, he was admitted to Bellevue Hospital with a 105-degree fever and an odd-looking rash on his face and hands. Three days later, Eugene was transferred to a different hospital. Uh, this one was Willard Park, New York City's Communicable Disease Hospital. And when he arrived, doctors contemplated about several diagnoses they could use to treat him, but that ultimately failed. By March 10th, Eugene Labar, this American businessman who traveled for, who traveled for Mexico City, um, had died. Subsequently, more patients were admitted to the Willard Parker to the Willard Park Hospital because they too began experiencing symptoms as Mr. Labar did. The first patient was a 22-month-old baby from the Bronx named Patricia. Then there was a 27-year-old man uh, from Harlem named Ismol Acosta. After that, a 30-month-old toddler, John, and more people continued coming in. The doctors initially thought they were dealing with chickenpox, but the rashes on the patients uh, said otherwise. There were some really con there were some really serious concerns about this spontaneous influx of patients at Willard Park Hospital. So the doctors there essentially sent some, I suppose, information to the United States Army Medical School laboratory about this then on april 4th uh, they received the results and it turns out that it was smallpox now this disease hadn't been in new york city before the war transpired so where did it come from that then led the doctors back to patient number one which was mr eugene labar the first person to experience those symptoms who came into new york city after his travel not his final destination not his final destination but he stopped there because he was sick and they, they just didn't know at the time, but it was smallpox. The health commissioner of New York City, Dr. Israel Weinstein, had been only employed for 10 months. Uh, this meant that he had something new and big on his hands. Uh, Josh Florio and Ozzy Shapiro report at the New York Times, quote, He'd been a child on the Lower East Side when a smallpox outbreak brought the city to its knees in the early 1900s, killing 720 New Yorkers in a two-year period. Now, he was both a medical doctor and a scientist. He had earned a doctorate from New York University along with a PhD and an MAD from Columbia, end quote. So Dr. Weinstein is a very intelligent and studious person. He was also experienced in an outbreak like this before in his childhood. And when he received the lab results, he knew what he was up against. Smallpox was not this newly formed, highly contagious and lethal disease. No, this had been around for thousands and thousands of years. The disease is very easily transmissible because all it takes to contract it is for someone to cough, sneeze, or touch something, or you yourself. Upon contracting it in a short number of days before you develop a, in, a, and upon contracting it in a short number of days before you develop a fever, you will experience pain, nausea, fever, and aches. Uh, after that, this is from the New York Times, quote, a rash appears on the face and soon covers the body, sprouting into fluid-filled pustules. Uh, three out of ten cases are fatal. Those who survive are often deeply scarred, blind, or both, end quote. So, uh, yes, as I said, this is incredibly lethal and horrible. I mean, if you search up right now on your phone or whatever device you're listening to this on, search up, like, people with smallpox, you will see all these these spots 
um, it's, it's, it's really horrifying and to essentially experience this. When Dr. Weinstein received those lab results on Good Friday in April, which was April 4th, uh, he decided to waste no time because in two days there was a scheduled annual Easter parade, which could be a public health nightmare if he didn't take action in terms of people coughing and sneezing on each other and, and getting together. So he knew that only one thing could solve this problem. That one thing was a vaccine. And so, and back then it's not like, it's essentially, it's not like now with the coronavirus where we've had to create vaccines. Back then there were vaccines already available. And so at two o'clock PM the next day, uh, Dr. Weinstein held a news conference urging all New Yorkers to get vaccinated immediately. Even if they had already received the vaccine as a child, Dr. Weinstein was being extremely earnest about this. He was not jerking around here. For, for those who had received them as a child, he said that you could essentially have lost your immunity to, to this virus. Therefore, in order to pre prevent being reinfected with smallpox, uh, getting vaccinated against it was worth it. Uh, back then, the vaccination process was not as meticulous as it is now, so the vaccine, which was for public use, could potentially cause rare but dangerous side effects. And if people had skin conditions, people had skin conditions or weakened immune systems, they were more likely to experience those side effects. When there was great public skepticism about taking this vaccine, Dr. Weinstein, as I said, he was not joking around here, Dr. Weinstein delivered coherent, consistent, and transparent messages on the radio. And he was pretty serious about it too. We cannot guarantee that there have not been other cases. Because not every piece of smallpox, or for that matter of any disease, represents the classic or textbook picture. They vary in degree. Now there very well may have been certain mild cases that have gone about and have not been diagnosed. It's the carrier, the person who carries the organism on his clothes or on his body, or the person who has a mild attack of the disease, who is the dangerous one. And remember that the person who has a mild attack can give it to one who is unprotected, and that person get it in all its severity. If you gamble with your health and with your life, you are very foolhardy. There is a definite danger as long as people in the city are unprotected. For your own sake, and for that of your families and friends, please don't take a chance. Be vaccinated tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to a special address by Dr. Israel Weinstein, Health Commissioner of the City of New York. Vaccination is the sure preventative against smallpox. After Dr. Weinstein continued delivering those pivotal, convincing public health messages, uh, posters like this began appearing around the city, quote, be safe, be sure, get vaccinated, end quote. Those coherent, consistent, and very informative, transparent public health statements from Dr. Israel Weinstein encouraged more people to get vaccinated, and the lines were becoming extremely long. Those lines were so long, they stretched around building after building after building, and it just kept going. I mean, you can search up right now on your phone, 1947 New York vaccine lines, New York small, smallpox vaccine lines, and look at the pictures. 
uh, this is what happened when there was a shortage of vaccines. The New York Times writes, quote, the municipal stockpile contained nowhere near enough to vaccinate all the city's 7.8 million residents. With the cooperation of Mayor William O'Dwyer, Dr. Weinstein secured 250,000 units of vaccine from the Naval Medical Supply uh, Depot in, in Brooklyn. He had 780,000 doses flown in from military bases in California and Missouri. He purchased an additional 2 million from private manufacturers, and then he ordered more. He directed his Bureau of, of, of Laboratories to convert its bulk supplies into single-dose units, and he began a tracing program to locate and vaccinate those who had been in contact with the victims." End quote. The New York Times described the vaccine rollout at the time as, quote, remarkably swift and uncomplicated, end quote. New Yorkers stood in long lines for hours, uh, whether it was cold or raining. They were determined to receive the vaccine. In front of news cameras, Dr. Weinstein vaccinated the mayor of New York City himself, William O'Dwyer, and to make big news headlines when President Harry S. Truman flew in as well to roll up his sleeve and get the vaccine. People were so thrilled to get the vaccine that the, that ordinary people started volunteering to assist in delivering the vaccines. Uh, eight, do, eight doses were administered per minute, and 889,000 students got vaccinated. In just the first two weeks of this vaccine rollout, 5 million New Yorkers were vaccinated against smallpox and containing this highly contagious communicable disease. In the middle of April, when the city's stockpile experienced another another surge, another shortage, excuse me, the mayor ordered an emergency meeting of all drug company representatives and threatened to publicly ridicule them if they didn't move faster. Upon hearing that, they were like, okay, mayor, yes, sir. And within 48 hours, a million more doses arrived. In the early in early May of 1947, after just after the death of 47-year-old Eugene Labar died from smoke died from smallpox um, earlier that year, Dr. Weinstein announced that it was over, and this deadly disease had passed for New York City for New Yorkers who had grappled with this for months. And Dr. Weinstein would go on to write in the American Journal of Public Health later that year about his experience. He wrote, quote, in a period of less than a month, 6,350,000 people were vaccinated in New York City. Never before had so many people been vaccinated in such a city and on such short notice, end quote. The results of that smallpox outbreak in New York in 1947 was 12 cases and two deaths. Dr. Weinstein ultimately resigned in November of 1947, which was seven months after the smallpox outbreak there had been quashed. So that was just one example of how local health officials, of how a local health official discovered this in his community and worked valiantly to immediately quash it. But it wasn't until the 1950s it wasn't until the 1950s that there was a concerted effort to eradicate this highly contagious communicable disease. 
And so one of the world's most powerful health institutions founded in 1948 uh, called the World Health Organization led the way and began assisting in a global effort, in a global concerted effort to annihilate smallpox. In 1967, WHO, the World Health Organization, made a plan um, to diametrically eradicate smallpox. Nations coalesced and and vaccination ads appeared all over the place. The initial goal was to just get everyone vaccinated in order to quash the pandemic in order excuse me in order to quash this global uh, infectious disease Uh, but that became a hurdle for countries grappling with financial destitution civil unrest environmental disasters and poverty one of those nations at the time was india this was the headline at the new york times in 1974 quote smallpox fatal to at least 10,000 in india end quote So because of that particular challenge, WHO proposed a different approach. According to a, according to the Vox YouTube channel, quote, instead of trying to vaccinate everyone at once, public health officials focused on infected individuals using a form of contact tracing, end quote. So the infected person would self-isolate and then vaccinate and then, and then essentially everyone else who was in contact with with the person who's self-isolating, they would get vaccinated. Then they would vaccinate whoever came in contact with those people and so on. That scientific method to quash those small and what would have been potentially large outbreaks was called ring vaccination. Ultimately, it was successful. And on May 8th, 1980, the World Health Organization declared smallpox officially eradicated and the three and the three factors that played a prominent role in eradicating smallpox was vaccinations global cooperation and contact tracing and isolation right now of course we are grappling internationally with the coronavirus pandemic it reportedly originated in china in november of 2019 and reached our shores in late january It also became more prevalent in other countries. The difference between smallpox and the coronavirus is that smallpox could be contracted from human to human. That's how this disease was transmitted. However, the coronavirus is a bit is a bit different. This disease came from an animal, which was then contracted by a which is then transmitted to a human. And that's how this this all started. Smallpox began with a human and became more prevalent from there. And because of that difference, it makes it a little bit harder to quash this. With smallpox, it was easier to eradicate it because the transmission was from human to human. With the coronavirus, there was an animal vector, which then gave it to a human. Not only that, but with this disease, we have asymptomatic people. A person could only transmit smallpox if they were showing symptoms. So that's how that worked. But with the coronavirus, people can be contagious days before they reach that point or never get symptoms at all. As Vox put it on their YouTube channel, quote, therefore, it's much harder to effectively trace something you can't see or isolate a person that doesn't even realize they're sick, end quote. Currently, with this pandemic, we are grappling with some major challenges as we as we are returning to normalcy, such as new coronavirus variants and homegrown variants as well and also a surge in new cases. In multiple states, coronavirus cases have been rising exponentially again. One of those states is Michigan, and that has experts alarmed. The Washington Post describes this recent uptick in cases in Michigan as, quote, scary, end quote. 
Today, Michigan reported 8,400 new coronavirus cases, more than that, actually. It it is the most since December. This is reporting from uh, CBS News, quote, As federal officials warn of a potential fourth wave of COVID-19 infections, Michigan has emerged as one of the most pressing hotspots with average daily infections now five times what they were six weeks ago. New data from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services shows the this dramatic surge in, is due in large part to case spikes among young children and teenagers. According to state data, since February 19th, average daily new COVID-19 cases among children under 10 jumped 230%, more than any other age group. The second highest increase in infections is in the 10 to 19 age group which saw cases rise 227%. The trends in these groups exceeded that of the state as a whole. End quote. According to clickondetroit.com, nearly 40 COVID-19 pop-up testing sites have been opened across Michigan. And like I said, um, it, it's not just Michigan that's experiencing the, these new coronavirus outbreaks that's causing surges, especially among young people, other states are facing it as well. If you are a baseball fan, this is of particular concern to you, and you're probably following this as well, uh, because the National Braves uh, just reportedly postponed their game uh, by a day because of a coronavirus outbreak. This very alarming, and this is very alarming, as I said, with with the coronavirus pandemic here, with us potentially seeing a fourth coronavirus wave. In 1918, there was a fourth coronavirus wave, and as I have said on previous episodes, it came back like a a roaring lion, uh, like like a roaring lion uh, coming back to get its cub. So as I said, this rise in new coronavirus cases, especially in Michigan and other parts of the country, this is alarming. And as we are making improvements, uh, this can, as we are making improvements on the front of vaccinations, this can potentially just cause us to shut back down again. And those concerns were echoed earlier this week by CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth, even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm gonna pause here, I'm gonna lose the script, and I'm gonna reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. I know what it's like when you're the physician, when you're the healthcare provider, and you're worried that you don't have the resources to take care of the patients in front of you. I know that feeling of nausea when you read the crisis standards of care and you wonder whether there are gonna be enough ventilators to go around and who's gonna make that choice. And I know what it's like to pull up to your hospital every day and see the extra morgue sitting outside. I didn't know at the time when when it would stop. We didn't have the science to tell us. We were just scared. We have come such 
a long way. Three historic scientific breakthrough vaccines, and we are rolling them out so very fast. So I'm speaking today, not necessarily as your CDC director and not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. I so badly wanna be done. I know you all so badly wanna be done. We are just almost there, but not quite yet. And so I'm asking you to just hold on a little longer to get vaccinated when you can, so that all of those people that we all love will still be here when this pandemic ends. The trajectory of the pandemic in the United States looks similar to many other countries in Europe, including Germany, Italy, and France, looked like just a few weeks ago. And since that time, those countries have experienced a consistent and worrying spike in cases. We are not powerless. We can change this trajectory of the pandemic, but it will take all of us recommitting to following the public health prevention strategies consistently while we work to get the American public vaccinated. I'm calling on our elected officials, our faith-based communities, our civic leaders, and our other influencers in communities across the nation. And I'm calling on every single one of you to sound the alarm, to carry these messages into your community and your spheres of influence. We do not have the luxury of inaction. For our, the health of our country, we must work together now to prevent a fourth surge. Quote, we must work together now to prevent a fourth surge. End quote. That was CDC Director Rochelle Walensky emotionally pleading with the public to hang in there so we can uh, avoid a fourth wave. That was her speaking late last month. The, the coronavirus is not smallpox. But we can learn in lessons. We can learn what the lessons of that disease and how it was eradicated and hopefully working to get rid of this one. Also, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. We are on the verge of returning to normalcy. But these challenges like states reopening, especially in Republican-controlled states, these politically motivated reopenings, large gatherings with unvaccinated people and disregarding the essence of wearing a mask and saving lives is causing a problem. And if we do not get this under control, if we do not get this type of behavior under control, it will set us back and delay the end of this pandemic. Stay with us. We've got more ahead tonight. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part. On the home front, on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. On July 24th, 1998, uh, a man entered the Capitol through the staff-only entrance document door on the east front and began shooting his gun. Politico reported on this shooting at the time, writing, quote, Having skirted the, medical de the metal detector, Weston shot Chestnut in the back of the head at point-blank range. He then turned down a corridor and pushed through a door, which led to a suite used by Republican Congressman Tom DeLay, the majority whip. Gibson, a plainclothes detective assigned DeLay's assigned to
into Delay's security detail was fatally wounded when he exchanged gunfire with Weston. Other officers then subdued the wounded gunman. Republican Senator Bill Frist, a heart surgeon who had been presiding all over the Senate floor, resuscitated the gunman and accompanied him to D.C. General Hospital. The House and Senate passed a concurrent resolution authorizing a memorial service to be held for the officers in the Capitol Rotunda. They were the first police officers, and Chestnut was the first African American to be honored and to lie in state. End quote. This was reporting from NBC News at the time. You're looking live tonight at the building that was the scene of chaotic violence on Friday. Tonight, it's a place of grief and lasting tributes. The Capitol steps serving as an impromptu memorial. People left flowers, cards, notes, small tokens, all to show their appreciation for the two police officers who died in service to their country. And inside, a formal goodbye fit for a head of state. NBC's Gwen Eiffel has that. Hundreds of police officers marching to the Capitol today in a moving display of national grief. Fathers brought their daughters. Strangers wept together, mourning two men nearly all of them never knew. What makes our democracy strong is not only what Congress may enact or a president may achieve. Even more, it is the countless individual citizens who live our ideals out every day. There wasn't any precedent for this, both houses of Congress voted special honors for Jacob Chestnut and John Gibson, each killed in the line of duty during a shocking daytime gun battle at the Capitol last week. Hundreds of school children, Capitol Hill employees, and lawmakers filed into the soaring rotunda today to pay tribute. The Capitol's ornate and spectacular rotunda echoed with muffled expressions of grief. Many wore blue ribbons as signs of respect blue for the thin blue line often used to describe police officers. No member of the Capitol Police Force had ever been killed in the line of duty before, and no one here was quite prepared to cope. This loss hit a nerve. It was an assault on the nation's most recognizable symbol, its capital. An assault no one wants to live through again. Gwen Eiffel, NBC News, the Capitol. Quote, an assault no one wants to live through again. End quote. That was reporting from NBC News in 1998 after, those, after that deadly Capitol shooting. This year, the Capitol Police has faced an unfathomable amount of violence. Of course, they have faced it uh, since that 1998 shooting with previous attacks on the Capitol. On January 6th, former President Donald Trump incited his followers to march down to the Capitol, stating that the event would be wild. He previously stated that in December. That, that deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol left one Capitol Police officer named Brian Sicknick dead. His killers have since been arrested. Another officer committed suicide. Also reportedly more than 140 officers, more than 140 Capitol Police officers were wounded that day. Another officer was tased by an insurrectionist, which, which resulted in him having a heart attack. That person, too, has the person who, who essentially tased him has been arrested as well. Now there has been another deadly attack at the Capitol. This is Punchball reporter Jake Sherman on Twitter uh, recording a video of a helicopter landing on the east front uh, of the Capitol when it was on lockdown. He's, he describes this as the Park Police helicopter on while it was on lockdown uh, during this incident. This is unusual, I'm taping this. This is a helicopter literally landing on the east front of the Capitol. Um, I've never in my life seen this before. 
I've been up here a long time. Again, a helicopter landing on the east front of the Capitol. A U.S. Park Police helicopter. Oh my lord. Oh my god. Oh my god, he better be a good pilot with that maneuver. I don't know, man. The suspect in this case was a 25-year-old black man named Noah Green. He is reportedly a black nationalist and he is a supporter of the Nation of Islam. He is said to have mental health issues after losing his job and looking for spiritual guidance. Uh, of course, losing his job over the course of this pandemic. According to his family, he played football and suffered an injury. This attack on Friday left one Capitol Police officer dead and another wounded after they were hit by his vehicle. Uh, this is Capitol Police Officer Uganda Pittman in a press conference on Friday speaking about this tragedy and its toll on the United States Capitol Police. It is with a heavy heart that I come here uh, this afternoon to shed some light on the incident that occurred at the United States Capitol. At approximately 102 hours this afternoon, a suspect uh, entered what we refer to as the North Barricade of the Capitol. Uh, the suspect rammed his car uh, into two of our officers and then hit the North Barricade barrier. At such time, the suspect exited the vehicle with a knife in hand. Our officers then engaged that suspect. Uh, he did not respond to verbal commands. Uh, the suspect did start lunging toward U.S. Capitol Police officers, at, at which time uh, U.S. Capitol Police officers fired upon the suspect. At this time, uh, the suspect has been pronounced uh, deceased. Two U.S. Capitol Police officers were transported to two different hospitals, and it is with a very, very heavy heart that I announce one of our officers has succumbed to his injuries. We are not able to release any information, names, uh, age, date of birth, or anything of that nature at this time because we still have to notify the next of kin. I just ask that the public continue to keep U.S. Capitol Police and their families in, in your prayers. This has been an extremely difficult time for U.S. Capitol Police after the events of January 6th and now the events that have occurred here today. So I ask that you keep our U.S. Capitol Police family and your thoughts and prayers. That was Capitol Police Chief Yaganda Pittman speaking at a press conference, um, speaking, at a, speaking at a press conference um, addressing the public. That was on Friday, asking the public for their prayers, asking the public for their thoughts and prayers as they are grappling with these recent losses within the Capitol Police community and also attacks on the Capitol that they keep facing. We'll be right back.
Hey Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. Words about friendship. About sport. About belief. About fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you? Thank you. And I love you. Welcome back. One thing that we have been following here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show is hate crimes against Asian Americans rising exponentially amid the coronavirus pandemic. There have been recent hate crimes against Asian Americans committed earlier this week. If you go on uh, the Twitter account of NYPD hate crimes, you will see a lot of them. Remember that reporting there earlier earlier last Sunday that I reported on that hate crimes against Asian Americans specifically have risen nearly 150%, uh, especially in cities like New York and Los Angeles, California. Um, So we are watching this story. This is a live story. We're going to have another special report on this. You do not want to miss that. Uh, That will be coming up later in this week as we continue to follow this story. Also here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, another announcement is um, as essentially accountability for the insurrectionists that is transpiring, the insurrectionists who stormed the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021 to essentially try to reinstall Trump. Um, in office and to essentially um, obstruct Congress right now as they were uh, voting to certify the results of the presidential election. That happened on January 6th. One police officer died. Another police officer committed suicide. Also, multiple officers were injured. Um, And so in in talking about January 6th, right after that, nearly 100, I believe is like 150 House members on the Republican side still voted against the certification of the 2020 presidential election. And there is some accountability uh, that is essentially being starting to to be rendered uh, for those for those people. And one of the founders of this of this project that is working to hold these Republicans accountable for what they did, even after the deadly insurrection on January 6th, one of those founders of a new super PAC, he is going to be joining me here on the Jeremiah Patterson show uh, this Wednesday. So look out for that in terms of new announcements going on. But all of this is happening at once. We're also learning more right now um, in terms of uh, the what's going on at the border, the humanitarian crisis at the border, as the Biden administration is grappling with that right now. Um, we're getting reports of of essentially uh, new of new of new migrants arriving in Houston, Texas, also arriving at Fort Bliss um, to essentially provide some more space there. Since we're beginning to see these pictures and videos of already crowded areas, I'm going to have a special report on that as well as the the essentially how this fits in with the coronavirus pandemic. If you've been listening to my show since. June or since April, you know that I've reported extensively on the coronavirus pandemic and its devastating 
impact and lethal impact and just pernicious impact with, especially within, um, immigration detention facilities. I have many, I've had many reporters and experts on the show to talk about that. So these are all live stories that, uh, we are following here on the Jeremiah Patterson show. As far as updates, we've got more to get to tonight. Stay with us. Introducing Tide Power Pods with Cat and Nat. I love how much I can stuff into these machines. But that is such a large load. Don't the stains sneak through? Please. New Tide Power Pods can clean that whole situation. You just toss it in before the close. It's like two regular Tide Pods and then some power and then even more power. With 50% more cleaning power, even your large load got clean. How many kids do you have? Girl, I lost track. There's a lot of kids. And then there's a husband. And then there's me. That's a lot of clothes. Welcome back. Later in this week on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, actually on Sunday, we're going to have reporting on the engulfing political crisis around New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's facing allegations of sexual harassment and also many other scandals engulfing his office right now, such as the nursing home allegations about covering up uh, the nursing home deaths in the state of New York. But um, another person in politics is sort of in the same, but not necessarily um, uh, pickle that he's in right now. And he's in sort of a whole different mess. This is uh, Congressman, Republican Congressman Matt Gates. Uh, this is reporting from ABC News. Those allegations against Florida Congressman Matt Gates. New reports the congressman is being investigated for allegedly making payments to women in exchange for sex. The Justice Department is already investigating whether he had a relationship with an underage girl possibly violating sex traffic laws. Congressman Gates is denying the allegations. ABC's Mary Bruce has more. Tonight, stunning new allegations that Florida Republican Matt Gates paid women for sex. ABC News confirming reports that the Justice Department is investigating whether the congressman and a local Florida politician gave cash or other items of value to multiple women who were recruited online to sleep with them. The New York Times reporting that as recently as last year, the men allegedly told women to meet at hotels, sometimes giving them cash from the hotel's ATM, and that some of the encounters reportedly involved the drug ecstasy. The inquiry is also examining whether Gates had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl and possibly violated sex trafficking laws. It is a horrible allegation and it is a lie. A spokesman for the congressman telling the Times Gates adamantly denies what he calls the disgusting allegations completely and that he's never paid for sex. Gates claims he's being extorted. Sources tell us that as a member of the Florida House of Representatives, female colleagues referred to him as, quote, creepy Gates because he made them feel so uncomfortable. Once in Congress, sources say Gates allegedly boasted of his sexual encounters with women and would allegedly try to show colleagues photos and videos of naked women he'd claimed he'd slept with. One source saying he tried to show him video of a naked woman with a hula hoop. Now, no charges have been filed against the congressman. He is facing calls to step down, though. And today, his own communications director resigned. Lindsay. Mary, thank you. That was reporting from ABC News earlier this week. We're going to have this as a live developing story. We're going to have more reporting as this story continues to develop in the news. Stay with us. Last note is next. Oh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? Mine. That's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. 
Actually, make it Friday. But when the water... You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. All right, so it was in 1776 um, when the United States officially declared its independence from Great England, um, seven, Great Britain, 1776, July 4th, 1776. Uh, the United States declared its independence. We became our own nation. We established the rules and laws of how this of how this of how this body would govern. Essentially, we we had sort of a little a little hard start off with the Articles of Confederation, but we then established a constitution. We uh, had a little hard start of who would who would be the the highest power, but then we but then we put a president in place. We got President George Washington, the first president of the United States, who also served in the Continental Army. We have been a democratic republic for years in this country. For more than 240 years, the United States has been a democratic republic. We have been revered as a shining democracy across the world. Right now, we are seeing an unprecedented attack on voting rights. No, nothing since nothing we've seen since like the Jim Crow era. I'm going to be reporting more on this on my podcast here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show on Wednesday. Um, but this is a this is an all-out assault on our democratic republic, and this attack should not be underestimated. It should not be laughed at, nor should it be disregarded, nor should it be downplayed. I mean, we are a democratic republic, but <laughs> to the rest of the world, that's a joke. To the rest of the world, are we? I mean, it puts us in a question here. I mean, look what has happened to us over the past years. I mean, even before Donald Trump got in office, our Democratic Republic is already weakening in terms of polarization and in terms of, of does our Congress still work? I mean, these are things that we seriously need to address in protecting our Democratic Republic or else we, are no, we will no longer be one. And it will not be because of a Trump presidency. I mean, yeah, Donald Trump being in office definitely was terrible for our democratic republic but it exposed some things that we need to fix and if we don't fix them then eventually those cracks are gonna lead to a collapse i mean you can only beat something with a bat so long before it cracks open or before it just capitulates and gives in Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. I will see you again this Wednesday on the Jeremiah Patterson Show for a special um, with Joe Jacobson, the founder of the Sedition Caucus, which is a super PAC that is working to hold the Republicans who voted to still overturn the presidential election accountable. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Be safe, stay positive and inspired, and take care.